Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. Well, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. God, I'm not going to say that much longer to you, am I? <laughs> I think last week it was hinted while I was lying in Singapore being burnt to death by sun that Karen will be moving on and actually it's the 17th of June is Karen's last day and you are invited to join with us, to be with Karen. 100th episode. 100 episode. Who knew? Who we knew? would get there, right? But can I just tell you on a personal level, to lose my best friend from my work is pretty hard. So there'll be certainly a few tears on the 17th of June. But uh, From you or from me? Well, I hope a bit from you, but certainly from me. I'm a more emotional <laughs> no, creature. Yes, I'm not so much, but anyway. <laughs> so, but this, we're going to do something to honour you, Karen, and you don't know that yet. Oh, but, um, please don't embarrass me. On the 17th of June, we're going to make the 17th of June's episode about women, oh. partly because of what clearly happened the last election said, that Australia has not supported women in the way it should for a long period of time, partly on the base of the ALP platform, which does strongly support women and partly because our platform has always been that diversity, equality, equity, those things are key to being a successful business and that women should be in the forefront of it. So for Karen and for you on the 17th of June, we're going to focus on what has changed as a result of this election in women, Mm. what that means for your business and why it's good. So Karen will tell you more of the day where she's going for the moment, that secret squirrel stuff. But we are super proud of her and um, we will miss her terribly. So Mm, Thank you so much. Reconciliation Week, we should mention that. We should. And it's as you know, the saying for it is be brave and make a change. This is really not a coffee conversation. I don't want people sitting down for morning tea and thinking they're doing it. Our business, one of its major pro bono activities is supporting First Nations entrepreneurial behaviour through our Sydney office, which specialise in that, I want you to think about rethinking how we actually support and advocate First Nations issues. And part of that's re-education. Some of that is looking at what are the businesses that we do support. But most importantly, it's actually embracing their voice. So for us, that's an issue which we take on every single day and we prosecute every day. And I'd hope that other people would too. So that's very exciting. That's next week. That is between 27 May to June 3rd. All right, Karen, now we're going to do the show. Yes, legal news and developments, Andrew. Legal news and developments. Okay, I've been trying to be good about this case. De Donna and uh, Men in Rock Aged Care is a, a really poor decision. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so that's all um, I'm going to that, say. Is that it? Yeah, I think D.P. Coleman was not really supported by the submissions that he received because this case is rich with law, none of which was applied. So this is a woman who prepared and served food in an aged care facility. There was a policy. The policy was silent on what happened if you didn't do it, and there was no evidence led to the contrary of that. You had to wear a face mask when you were dealing with patients, Mm -hmm. okay? So that's not hard, isn't it? But the policy was silent. She was summarily terminated for this process. Now, she didn't do it, and she took a mask down because the patient couldn't understand her. Now, in any risk assessment process, and all of I had this getting on a plane in Singapore where face masks we end up having to stand back, take our masks off to speak to each other Mm because we weren't being able to hear each other, although the rule was very strict in Singapore. The issue about this is this is such a terrible action to take to a person when other people in the organisation did it all the time. Yes. So there was a condemnation. But worse still, the full federal court, when Frank Buchanan was a judge, at first instance, 
He said at first instance in the case of Oracle and Richardson, if a policy doesn't say the effect of that, mm-hmm. then it's not a policy. If you don't say you can, you know, additionally consequence up to termination, then it's not a policy. It's not a lawful and reasonable direction because it doesn't advise us to the risk. Yeah. Nor was this ever said to be a golden rule in the organisation, nor was there any education. What DP Coleman did is reflect back and say, oh, you're putting vulnerable people at risk, so therefore it's a valid reason. That is absolute horseshit. It is not a valid reason. It's getting rolled up. Well, it's not a valid reason when the policy is not a lawful and reasonable direction. Yeah. And when there's no edu- evidence of education and training, when there's no risk assessment that's been done that supports it. So, look, she ended up succeeding because of the poor consultation process that was in it, but for almost nothing. She got a notice period. This is a very bad decision and one you should not follow, okay? Yeah. What you should do is risk assessments, policies that have very clear consequences at the end of it mm-hmm. and if it is if something like this is going to happen with deaf elderly people and people often with english not as a first language yeah and you know face masks make it hard what do you do to get around it yeah so flawed, flawed number way flawed in a number of ways okay so in terms of takeaways one policy did i forget to okay. say the takeaways? yeah no you, <laughs> you're just getting a bit rolled up anyway so make sure your policies are really clear around consequences in terms of a non-compliance or breaches Two, if it's a if it's a requirement, make it really clear. So if it's a golden rule, make it really clear to people that um, this is required at all times. The condemnation piece that you spoke about as well, Andrew, that would therefore mean that you need to consistently adhere to that rule. Otherwise, that it's harsh, and therefore you can't terminate. Exactly. Harshness. It wasn't dealt with at all, even though they raised that other people were doing. It was such a bad judgment. Yeah. Anyway. I'm not blaming the deputy president. I just want to be clear. It's the submission. No, I'm not. I get in trouble. I wouldn't do that. But I am saying the submissions before it, absolutely law-free. When you read it, not one case is mentioned. Anyway, next decision. Move on. Bostock. So Bostock, a really interesting case. 33-year employee. Confidential complaint was made. And I'm going to ask you briefly about your views on confidential complaints and how to manage them. Mm -hmm. This person, a late-aged man, 33 years in a business, Hunt for Red October. Yeah, thank you very much for that. That almost seems like Clive anyway, but it probably is not. 33 years, gets this confidential complaint. It takes a period of time in which to do it. The guy suffers from two medical conditions eventually. He had a hernia at the time. He then develops a mental condition. They asked him to take an IME because of his mental health condition. The hernia claim was accepted. The psych claim was rejected. By the way, if this had have ended up in front of a workers' comp tribunal, it would have definitely been accepted. I might just add that. It just didn't proceed in that way. And after a period of time, they said, look, you're not coming back to work. He'd refused the IME, so they just terminated his employment, and they literally did it through an exchange of correspondence. Karen, we do, between us, hundreds of investigations, and one of the things we know is the impact of confidential confidential complaints and we know that you move quickly you're generous you're supportive Mm -hmm. and recognize the impact it has on someone Mm -hmm. maybe you could just explore that a little bit more and explain why i'm unhappy about where we ended up in this case yeah sure so look confidential complaints they're very important to have under whistleblower you know you they're there for a reason but in terms of creating a process and managing investigations of these type of complaints it's really important to explain and engage with the person who is affected uh, or subject to the complaint what the process is, how it's going to work, so they have certainty, they have clarity over what to expect over that because it's a it's a difficult period. And in terms of making sure that they're supported throughout that yeah, process. Acknowledge their fear. 
course. I mean, if I received a complaint, like, who would not be worried? And the problem is they're always about an incident, aren't they? So there's only four of you who know. Particularly that. When you know that there's love. You know, <laughs> Who's like, doing this to you me? Can, you have a pretty good idea of who it involves, and it just creates this tension and awkwardness. So create safety and clarity for that person and the people involved so that, that you can get through that process quickly and you can arrive at whatever outcome. And say to them, right? look, there's four people involved in this and you're probably thinking it's one of them. Mm. And the answer is I can't help you that it may or may not be. But don't dwell on that and look into their eyes to see whether they're the person who's stabbing you. The yep. issue is this complaint, we're going to do it quickly. Yes. Because, and this is the problem, this wasn't quick, mm. which meant it just tore this person to pieces because they lived in a place of trust for 33 years and suddenly exactly. someone's dobbed on them. Yep. To use a boy's expression, yep. and you dobbed on me mm. and they don't know who it was and they sit there terrified. And that's why I say it would be compensable on mm. the workers' comp because work is the substantial contributor to it. Yeah. So, anyway, interesting case, more about how you manage things rather than the law. Let's go on to Hooper because I think Hooper's a case which is ended up as a common law claim but could so easily have been a safety prosecution. Hooper was a, was a woman. She was a, a highly qualified and skilled and recognised triathlete. She was driving a street sweeper. A habit of people driving them was when they had to get out and do things, they'd leave the truck in neutral, and this is clearly for the benefit of the business so they can do things quickly, put a handbrake on, handbrake wasn't on, truck rolled, she realised what happened, tried to remedy it, slipped, fell and was crushed and severely injured and was awarded $1.6 million. Okay. You can stop there and go, well, that's a that's an interesting story. It sounds almost apocryphal and then I don't believe that could be true. Mm. But 12 months before, exactly the same thing happened. So you've got two things that the officers of this organisation knew. They definitely knew it had occurred before. So I want you to think about reckless endangerment at this stage. So they're aware of a risk of serious injury or death. We're all aware of that risk, by the way, because even when I drive a car, I know not to leave it in neutral and put a handbrake on because it could roll and kill me, mm -hmm. could damage my vehicle, yep. you know, on a more selfish level, or other people. Yep. So this is a risk they knew. So in any jurisdiction... This was a risk the officers knew, whether it was an objective jurisdiction throughout the rest of Australia or in Victoria, the individual jurisdiction, okay, the subjective jurisdiction. And they did nothing about it mm. because it continued to go. So that's the second thing. You've got a condemnation of a risk. How could that happen? That's reckless endangerment. It's clearly a primary breach. The fact that it went for $1.6 is just economic loss mainly and a bit of general damages. Yep. But the lucky thing for these people is there's no one in jail because yeah. this is a go-to-jail example and the perfect example of how safety fails, isn't and it? And I would have thought, yeah, certainly uh, cities wide as well, so that type of employer, yeah, they're, they're quite lucky in that respect. But, yeah, look, if, you, if you're aware of a risk and uh, in terms of it being critical as well, with that knowledge, you, you have to have the appropriate controls in place. Yeah. And a plan in itself is not enough. All right. Let's go on to the next subject, which is part of why we're here today. We've had an election. The election results mean as far as the implementation of policy. What we're going to talk about, the likely implementation of policy is, is true. Mm -hmm. There's some parts which will require state support, and that's always complex. But it falls into five major categories, I think. There is a safety net change, and there's a definite safety net change, which is looking at connecting particularly minimum wages to inflation. Karen and I were just chatting about this downstairs. People will be scared about that. I want you to understand there's been a massive erosion of the purchasing power of the minimum wage because it's been set against a measure that doesn't look at their expenditure patterns. Mm. So when you look at buying foods, when yep. you look at buying takeaway foods, you look at buying alcohol, you look at those types of things, which is the buying and petrol, yep. 
these people now are 20 to 30 percent worse off now yep. than they were last year. Okay, so this is not a big thing, and we shouldn't get too too excited about it. There is a change in the perception of providing certainty around uncertain work, which is contracting, casuals, gig economy. There's a push around psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Talk about that in a second as well. There is a very strong push around women, which is why we're dedicating the 17th to, to Karen and to women. And there is this view around looking at third-party methods of enforcement and pushing up the powers of people like the Australian Human Rights Commission. And there are people like families, employees in safety legislation, but unions and other representative bodies in sex discrimination areas. Can I just say to you this, the idea of getting unions, so under safety legislation, Section 130 allows anybody to require the safety regulator in Victoria, and there's similar provisions in every state and territory, to review a decision that has been made to prosecute or not to prosecute. The answer is not to give third parties who will industrialise litigation around such perilous and stressful things as sexual discrimination and injury or death at work. The idea is to fund the regulators so that they take appropriate and fair actions. Once we start to industrialise the most terrible things that happen to people, the person who gets hurt most is the person who was hurt. Yes. Okay? That's a dumb thing, but it's a party platform. So just there's a lot of things which are very commendable about these platforms, and let's dig a bit deeper, but they're the five sort of themes that are coming through it. If I can deal on just the industrial front first of the sort of changes that are coming through, there's a push to remove the casualisation clause that came through post-Rosetta's case to take it back to the old common law position. That will be a disaster for most organisations. It was a terrible position we are in before. Rosetta has allowed us to acknowledge the permanent casual award casual with the 12-month review process and if there's a good business purpose for why someone should stay casual, they stay, otherwise they can become permanent. There's no need to fix that. There is introducing sexual protections within Fair Work Act. There's a lovely thing about superannuation going into the Fair Work Act protection so that individuals or the Fair Work Ombudsman can pursue unpaid. Mm. There's wage theft. Look, there's so many good things they're talking around, the general changes that are occurring. Under the sex discrimination issue, there's an empowerment Australian Human Rights Commission to actually litigate and pursue and enforce, which I think is good. I hope the resources follow it. There's a removal of the cost jurisdiction, which is great because it's been used by plaintiff's forms, a predatory waiter, to litigate to get their costs and the other person gets nothing, but we just get the cost paid out. of. We don't want to see that sort of stuff. What's really good about it is Kate Jenkins' report, which the Liberals only introduced five of the principles, the whole of it is, is set to go. I think that will be supported. I think it looks like Labor will get a majority, so it will go through in the lower house and the makeup of the upper house suggests that'll be supported as well. Can I say for all people, that is a great outcome. It is. And it's just a great outcome. So they're the sort of changes. The other thing is there will be a positive duty to stop, not just to prevent, but to stop sexual harassment, discrimination in the workplace. That duty will be very onerous, which is almost like a reverse onus if something occurs and it means that you are exposed to prosecution, not by the sex, through the Sex Discrimination Act, but you then have something which the OHS regulator can go to. Okay, so look, really good changes in safety law. Not surprisingly, something that Karen and I are very excited about is trying to get the full harmonisation across the line, trying to take out the differences that people have, introducing industrial manslaughter, psychological safety across every jurisdiction, like in Victoria, New South Wales and Western Australia. Like it's exciting. That is a really exciting stuff. 
let's see how willing. They're mainly Labor states at the moment and maybe they can give up workers' comp by gee, that'd be that'd be just wonderful, yeah. wouldn't it? So we had one jurisdiction on workers' compensation. Probably something which I don't agree with because we had up until around about seven or eight years ago, New South Wales had a reverse onus prosecution, which meant you had to prove as the employee you weren't guilty. And the regulator actually made a profit in New South Wales from prosecuting because it no. was incredibly difficult to defend the prosecutions on a reverse onus. And that's partly not in the big organisations who are quite successful, but the smaller organisations often lack the infrastructure and the human capital to provide that appropriate defence. Mm. And it was just so unfair. And, of course, the fines were massive. So it was crippling and bad and it wasn't reflective of the truth. But that is one of the things that they're really interested in doing. So there's some really, I think, some really good things. And the best thing, the best thing in the safety is this idea of, this is sort of political talk, yes. of weaponising the consultation process, of saying, look, what we want to do is beef up consultation as a key issue. Again, something Karen and I keep saying, please consult, risk assess, and actually prosecute people for failing to consult before they make a decision that places people at risk. And that's the prevention part, which I think is really clever. Yep. So that's a very brief analysis of what's happening. And they're also going to adopt the whole of the Boland Report which once again has not been adopted by the Liberals that have come in, which means no insurance across Australia, industrial yeah. manslaughter across Australia, proper harmonisation, everything. So that's exciting. It is exciting. But I know for many of you on this call, it is a lot and it can, from an employer standpoint, be feel overwhelming in terms of how much more do we have to do and understand and navigate and implement. That makes a lot of sense why people might think and feel that way. At the heart of it, though, if you go, why are these changes being made or being proposed? It all comes from a good place. In fact, for those, many of you are actually doing this already. So if anything, it's about normalising and lifting the standard of really respect, engagement. We talked about diversity, about inclusion, about whether you want to call it fairness, equity, all these principles that really come to really is value-based, Andrew. It's, look, um, it really brings it to life. Right? It's interesting, Karen. You know, we you did a great training for us the other day on diversity, inclusion and equity, which has really been well-loved and we've just finished the survey we're sending out to people to get the feedback. But when we're talking about what our policy, so our policies provide a very significant period of leave for whoever is a partner, mm. whether man, woman, man, man, woman, woman, whatever it is, we don't care. If you're a, If you're a parent, you get it. And we cover you for the superannuation during that period of time. So there's no superannuation loss, mm. which was an issue that you raised. And I went home that night and thought, well, this is something we created four years ago yep. and tried to benchmark where we were. And I realised this is driven from a value system. That's right. And actually, we, it's, it's where I think it's very good what we do. So I'll, I'll congratulate myself briefly on it. But my point about <laughs> this is all this legislation is doing is providing the practitioners who go and support operations with the tools to say, this actually is what good looks like now. Yeah. Now, this is what happens if you don't. Mm. But it was always good to do this. Mm. It's just now there's a bit of a sting in the tail if you don't. Yeah. Look, this is great for our HR and safety practitioners and champions. But um, we'll move on to the case study now. Yeah, maybe. there are some bad stuff in there, though. No, I just want to be really clear. That casualisation stuff in third party is just crap. Mm. Yeah, anyway, that's party politics, isn't it? We get a bit of crap for whoever's in charge. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Over to you, Karen. Okay, thank you. So, Neo Anderson was a computer programmer at Rabbit Hole Tech, RHT. The organisation built vertical lift-off aircrafts, plane-like structures that did not require a runway. 
NEO specialised in developing code to manoeuvre and elevate the aircraft safely in a balanced way. A code failure in the aerodynamic controls could be fatal. Trinity, NEO's supervisor, loved his skill and flair and her supervision was light. She was relaxed, inducting him on RHT's rules, but had explained that there were strict rules around coding changes. They had to be undertaken separately in a text box and they had to be double-checked by a supervisor before entering them into the mainframe. In March 2022, one of RHT's major clients, Sentinel Inc., confirmed they would be conducting an audit and any failure in the audit process could be treated as repudiation of their contract. Morpheus, RHT's operations... Hang on, did I get that right? Yeah, you okay. even, though you have, even though you haven't watched the film, you got it right. Oh, okay. I haven't seen this film. Anyway, RHT's operations manager spoke to staff on the morning of the audit and asked them to ensure they followed the correct rules as they were being audited. Mr Smith, the quality control auditor, observed all the work undertaken that day. He witnessed Neo entering code directly into the mainframe, something that Neo had observed Cypher, a co-worker, doing earlier that week. Mr Smith approached Neo to ask why he had entered the code directly without checking with the supervisor. Neo explained it was a minor cleanup and RHT often just went straight in when there was no novelty or risk. Okay, well, let's get deal with the first question because what it looked like is we're dealing with an employment question. Yeah. Did RHT have any safety risk under safety legislation? So let's look at what's happening. We know, and we've had a case on this earlier today, haven't we? So we've had Hooper's case on this. Yeah. You're building a, an aircraft effectively which takes off vertically. The work you're doing on coding goes directly towards that working safely, and if you get it wrong, it can cause aerodynamic failure and crash. So if we're talking about there is a hazard, the coding hazard, what is the level of risk that attaches to it? It's very, very high, isn't it? And if that's the case, is the controls they have in place suitable? In other words, they just say, well, it's a minister of control, isn't it? Mm. There's nothing that stops a person going in directly. There's no, you have to get it signed off by a second person. So at the risk level control, they have completely failed in the control part of reasonable practicability. So is there a risk? Yes, there's a very high risk of prosecution if there was a crash, okay? And I'd go a bit further and say in all the non-Victorian jurisdictions because of the objective risk, in other words, is it a risk that the officers ought to know about? Most definitely the officers ought to know that if there is anything that could cause the risk of crash through the technology part of it, that there is appropriate process in place. So officers would also be liable. In Victoria, it would require some form of specific knowledge. Mm. But the condemnation may be sufficient to elevate that to a subjective knowledge. So the reason I put this problem together was partly because I knew Karen wouldn't have watched Matrix, but secondly to show you how something which is so tiny, mm. the entering of a code, Yeah can have such a major outcome at where it lands. Yep. And the issue then goes, well, I've got a primary breach duty. Who could be guilty of reckless endangerment? Okay. And the answer is Trinity because Trinity was aware there was this habit of doing it. There is no measure of what's novel or not novel and there is no explanation to how big a risk that can create. But what she wasn't doing was supervising it. So she was aware of a major risk of injury or death and she was careless as to what she did. And then there was an injury. So I think there's a lot of risk here that people would otherwise ignore. But I just put it out there just to show you we often forget, like when accountants say, in the supply of a particular product that we need for a machine that you're, that you're repairing, that's $8. We can get this stuff for $2 locally, just go. And they don't make the qualitative assessment of the risk that it creates when they put in a cheaper, less quality product in a machine like that. 
it is exactly the same risk which creates liability. All right, the next question is, if Neo was terminated for his breach of the rule summarily, would have he been successful in an unfair dismissal claim? Well, we know the case, don't we? Mm. The Donna. If we followed the case, the answer is no. But we're not following the case because it's a bad case, okay? Yeah. Here there was condemnation. There was also no explanation that Neo knew that if, by not following it, he was going to get into any real trouble. Mm. And, in fact, he'd been allowed to do this on a regular basis and other people like Cypher were allowed to do it. Yeah. So there would not be a valid reason, and if they, if some commissioner had taken the blue pill that day, decided to find a valid reason, it would definitely be harsh and unreasonable to do it. So, But, Andrew, just on that, though, that did make clear that if there was going to be a breach, he could put the contract at jeopardy. At a um, contract, but not you. Yeah, so we've got to be, that, that's quite a distinction, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. All right. So interesting again because Neo would be successful, okay, absolutely successful if he had lawyers representing him and said what the law was, so talked about Oracle and Wilson did all that sort of stuff, yeah. and they got the right commissioner on the right day. Okay, so he mightn't have been successful, but <laughs> he would be on appeal at the moment with the appeal division. All right, could Trinity be terminated for failure to supervise correctly? Well, this is one of my favourite topics, which is we always seem to punish the end point wrongdoer and not the person who permitted it. So the rule applied and who was the person who was given the lawful and reasonable direction to execute it? Trinity. Trinity didn't execute it. And like so many, so many cases, the individuality of the nature of relationship changes the way rules are enforced. And that's why I've sort of put this in the story. Mm. I can remember when we used to do performance reviews at one law firm, you never worried about your annual review if you were going well. You only ever worried about it if you weren't going so well. Because if you're going well, everyone said, I don't know why we do this. Mm. And if you're going badly, you get the letter two days before saying, look, we're really concerned about these issues. Mm. The personalising of the way we manage people is, is terrible. Trinity managed Neo differently, but she also let Cypher get away with stuff. So the answer is the person who has the greatest legal risk in safety is her, okay, because she's the reckless endangerment person. If someone's willing to put someone in jail for five years, which is what our legislation recognised throughout Australia for reckless endangerment, should they escape punishment? The answer is no, but historically they always do. Yeah. So one of my purposes of drawing this to you is when we go to look at bad behaviour, we never deliberately employed a badly behaving person, but we got them, and we usually got them because supervisors made them. Yeah. So... One answer is support, invest and protect our supervisors so they don't make those mistakes and have the skills. Yeah. But don't walk away from dealing with supervisor bad behaviour that permits risk and creates risk for the individual involved, for the organisation and in this case for the people who use the aircraft. Because remember, designer, manufacturers, all those people have the same liabilities under primary duties. Yeah. That's okay. the same kind of messaging I have with all my clients, Andrew. Build the capability at the manager-supervisor level and accountability, because you do that, they go hand in hand together. So with that, 11 a.m. It is 11 a.m. and I just said that on my time here. Guys, see you later. Lovely to see you again. Bye-bye. Bye.